everybody, welcome to episode 17 of Literary Disco, the Life of Pi episode. In today's episode, we will do a bookshelf revisit in which Todd, Julia, and I take something down from our bookshelves to talk about. And then we will discuss Jan Martel's novel, The Life of Pi, just in time for the film adaptation to arrive in theaters on November 21st. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Hello, guys. Good morning. Good afternoon. And if you're in Australia, have a happy tomorrow. I'll go first because mine is going to be... um... I'm sure everybody's already heard about this book, but I finally read it um, due to tremendous social pressure. (laughs) Um, I read, I just read um, The Sense of an Ending by Julian Barnes. Have you guys read it yet? I have not. People talk about it? I actually know nothing about this. Oh, great. Well, uh, so it's this really short book. I would even call it more like two short novellas together. Um, And it's told in two parts. And it's just on the surface, a very simple story about a guy the first half is a guy growing up, and it's very separate PC. You know, it, there's British schoolboy antics and social conflicts and all that stuff. And then the second half is, um, as an adult, he realizes some incidents occur, which I will not give away, and he realizes that his own memory and recollection of these events was skewed in a certain oh, way. Oh, I love that and, kind of stuff. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So, but the the first half is written with such British schoolboy authority that you completely, you know, you just accept it because it's a genre genre we've all read. Right. So it's an extremely powerful book. It's got a very um, insidious feel to it. Like you know, something is rotten at its core, but it takes literally until the last page to figure out what that is. So it, it's like a combination of a school novel and a mystery. So um, it's really good, and it's just really disturbing in that, you know, it really makes you reflect on your own, you know, sense of yourself as a moral person or, you know, how your actions may have affected others in the past. It's really hard to talk about the book without giving things away. Um, But tons of people recommended it to me because it's like a double reader. Like you read the whole thing and then you want to go right back to the first page and read it again. So yes, I've never, I've never read any Julian Barnes um, that I'm aware of. I I guess maybe some of the short stories, but none of his novels He's not an American, correct? Yeah, that's part of the problem. I'm uh, I'm only reading people um, who love America now. That's uh, wow. Yeah, you are a patriot. <laughs> yeah, well. The... <laughs> yeah, well, I just uh, you know it's a new thing. I I don't think we should be outsourcing our literature to the Brits. Wow. Yeah, it's just something that's well, been bothering me for a while. Just thought I'd roll it out there with this Julian Barnes doc. Believe it or not, it was their language first, Todd. I'm just going to throw that out there. You know, there is a potential that English comes oh, from England. There, but. there was, uh, and you might ask, why do you remember this, Todd? But I remember it. There was a question once posed in Parade Magazine, which I used to have an unhealthy obsession with. <laughs> oh, God. That seriously asked the personality parade, why aren't people upset about so many American acting jobs going to British actors who use accents to portray Americans? Why aren't we more up in arms about this? And I just thought, this is literally the dumbest human being that has ever walked this earth. 
who number one has to write a letter to Parade Magazine to ask this question, and then secondly has this belief, and then thirdly actually believes Hugh Laurie is ruining the American economy by portraying <laughs> an American actor or an American doctor on House. I, oh, I, I I don't know, Todd. I'm gonna actually jump in here. Um, I've had this conversation a lot. American actors are terrified by this. It's true. Really? Like, they, yes, because it does happen a lot. American actors have a much more sense of, like, um, I can just be myself and show up and get a part. And a lot of casting directors, a lot of producers love when an Australian or an English actor, young actor, shows up in their casting office and can do an American accent. They have a really good shot at getting that part over an American actor. It happens a lot, and it's kind of a problem. To the to the extent that there was huh. we there was a group of actors that we were we were debating whether one of us should fake to be Australian or English for a pilot season <laughs> because so many so many people were losing jobs to English or Australian actors. It really is. I mean, I, I, on an amateur level, it happens a lot. I mean, when so you, should I be upset about Heath Ledger's? Stardom. Did Heath Ledger take away from your potential? He, what happened is, I don't believe his death. I believe he was assassinated by American actors. You know what it is. You know what it is. <laughs> by Ryder Strong. Yeah. You know, Ryder, the truth is, <laughs> Ryder Strong assassinated Heath Ledger. I heard it on the internet. What people don't want to recognize, especially American actors, don't want to recognize, is that they're better actors. They have a better approach to acting. American school of acting has completely just eaten itself with the method and it's become a disaster i mean this is a much longer conversation but like having gone to australia and worked with actors over there like they are developing better actors and so if you go to theater school in australia or england you're a better actor probably than if you go to a theater school in america i totally believe that so they're just better actors and like we need to reform our acting schools and our acting programs to compete this is so interesting yeah it's it's a real thing it's a completely hmm. different approach to acting. I have one final question. Did you write the letter to Parade? <laughs> I, you know, I, I you? blogged about this letter to Parade in 2006, so I will find this again so people can read it and read my angered response, which was uninformed by the this actual... This was before you met me, then. This is 2006? Uh, or you just I don't know. Me? You know what? I don't know when it was. I'll have to look. Uh, <laughs> but I, I knew other actors. But I, I don't know if I knew their writing styles like I know yours, writer. So it could be when I read this letter that the truth comes out. It'll be revealed. All right. Well, since we're on perfectly on topic, <laughs> I'm going to bring up my bookshelf, which is um, the first. Well, maybe it's not the first. I don't know. We haven't talked that much about true crime. Uh, and so yeah. I found this book. This was an airport buy when I had should have been reading Pillars of the Earth and I really didn't want to. Ugh. And there in the airport, I found Christ. A Wilderness of Error by, by Errol Morris. Have you guys heard about this book? Okay, no. so you know Errol Morris, the filmmaker who did Fog of War yes. and a bunch of other amazing documentaries, and including the series First Person, which used to be on YouTube. Uh, and if you haven't seen it, you should check it out. It's amazing interviews with people that just lived through something crazy. Errol Morris is just a great interviewer, and he's kind of this obsessive documentarian who... Like he picks a subject and he just goes over and over and over and he's really into finding out the truth and the facts and he he just has this really obsessive wonderful quality about him that makes him a great journalist and so this is I think this is his first book I don't know if he's published a book before but I saw his name on this book and then I started looking into it and it's amazing I haven't finished it because I had to stop to read Pillars of the Earth unfortunately but what it is it's it's about the trials of uh, Jeffrey McDonald who was this um it's this famous case right after 
the Manson killings. He's an officer in the military, and his entire family was murdered, his two daughters and his wife. And Yikes. written in blood on the walls were, you know, pig, just like... Uh, the Manson killings. Helter Skelter. Helter Skelter stuff. So, um, and then he was there that night and he had been stabbed a bunch of times too. And he's actually a doctor in the military. Um, oh, so yeah, they yeah, saved yeah, him. Yeah. They saved right. him at the hospital and then immediately arrested him. And he went on a military trial where he was released because their, la- their evidence was horribly treated. Everything was a disaster. And then like 10 years later, he was brought up on criminal charges in a civil court and found guilty and has been in prison ever since. And so Errol Morris basically, Errol Morris decides to go back and just go over every aspect of this trial, interview everybody who's still alive, uh, or both of these trials, actually. And it is so interesting. It's it's one of those great uh, stories where it's like there's there's the narrative that came out of one trial, then there's the narrative that came from the defense. Then there's the narrative that the cops have since said, then, you know, there's like all these competing narratives for what actually happened in this night. And Errol Morris has no agenda other than please just find out the truth. And it's so fun to read. Um, and does does he reference, um, does he reference fatal vision? The, the first book about, this murder yeah. and then the TV movie. He also movie. references the TV movies that talk yeah. about it, and he does great things like he'll include passages of the script from the TV movies. Oh, God, and talk- <laughs> yeah. So I mean, the, that's what's great about Errol Morris is he has such a nimble mind. He's not one of these people who's like has you know he he his, the book will include like timelines, obsessive timelines. So you'll go through like three pages of timelines, and then he'll just do like a whole chapter that's like on the coffee table. And it'll be like just four pages about the way the coffee table was positioned and then how many times different teams of investigators tested the fact that the coffee table was in that position Mm. and how they couldn't come up with any answer. So it becomes this investigation in how do you get to the truth of anything, you know? You walk away with this paralyzing, overwhelming sense of like, wow, we can never know the truth of any event. Or can we? Yeah, I I still haven't finished the book, so maybe I'll have a very solid... But it's such a wonderful book. If you're into that idea of like... What happened on this night, or what ha- You know, how do we know what happened, or what's true, or what's not? If, you're, if that at all interests you, and I think if you're into true crime, that's kind of what we're into true crime for. Uh, it's great. And you know, Fatal Vision, which Joe McGinnis wrote, um, was actually one of the like you know the big books that reintroduced true crime as sort of a literary genre when it came out, and I think it was like I want to say it was like 1979 mm-hmm. or something like that. It came out a long time ago. 83. I'm looking it up right now. 1983. Um, so it's it's sort of fascinating to have someone revisit that same crime. Yeah. Um, and I guess Errol Morris has been into it since the 80s. Like, he's been following the case since the 80s and has been involved in interviewing people since then. So this is like the culmination of, you know, 20 or 30 years of interest. And um, it... it I mean, I don't know. If it, it, I mean, I also read Helter Skelter like five years ago, which I had never read, and that's an, a crazy book. But that's a whole different other type of of true crime. I mean, right. that has a very clear narrative. Yeah. It's like, here is what happened, and I'm the lawyer who put it all together and prosecuted right. this trial. And it ends up, you know, it, there's a very clear narrative of like, we finally put it all together, and it's still it's, it's exciting to read. But this is so different. This is more like this gets at the nature of. Of, of truth in general and nonfiction, mm-hmm. like the the question of how do you how do you know what actually happened and when a crime like this 
occurs and so many different motivations you know why the cops want to prosecute somebody why right. they won't they don't want it to be a copycat killing of the the helter skelter killings like what does it mean you know that's great and the weird thing though apparently from what you're saying is that he's also he's also talking about you know what is basically apocryphal which would be the tv movie you know right. where yeah. you know and using that because that also shapes the public's opinion because mcdonald's been on trial he was on trial several times as i recall mm-hmm. Over the years, because every time he was on trial, they did a new Dateline episode. Yep. Um, Keith Morrison standing out on someone's lawn. He seemed like a normal man. Good family. Good house. <laughs> and then one day, snapped. Um, so that leads me quite directly into my bookshelf revisit, which I think both of you will be surprised and our reader, our listeners will be surprised to find out is actually a book. Uh, yeah, I know. I know. Um, you can read. Uh, well, that's it's a question I've had. Um, so, a book came out in 2008 that um, was called Obama's Challenge by Robert Kuttner, K-U-T-T-N-E-R, uh, and the subtitle was America's Economic Crisis and the Power of a Transformative Presidency. And the book came out before Obama was elected. Um, oh. So wow. it's, it's also sort of a predictive text. Um, and I reviewed it um, in a newspaper when it came out. And um, what I said when I reviewed it was, the book is not merely a rallying cry for Obama. Rather, it examines how transformative presidents lead, offering a historical look at the challenges faced by members of both parties, including Abraham Lincoln, Franklin Roosevelt, Lyndon Johnson, and to a lesser extent, Ronald Reagan. Um, and then I, you know, say a bunch of things that are praiseworthy about it. Um, but the interesting thing about this book is that it accurately, because uh, I went back and looked at it, it accurately figures out exactly what Obama's challenges were going to be for the next four years regarding health care and regarding the, um, the budget. Uh, the one thing it doesn't really talk about, but which, you know, it's sort of in here subtextually is obstructionism. Yeah, I was going to say, how could he have possibly predicted how obstructionist they were? Right. And that's, that's the fascinating thing is that what he, what Kuttner is talking about in the book um, is presuming that there would, at any point in the four years that Obama had been president, um, upcoming, would be that there would be some ability to get anything done. Um, and it, it's a fascinating look at, you know, where we were basically in 2007 um, and what our hopes were. I mean, it's sort of silly. It's really silly to call someone a transformative president before they're even in office. I know. And I think that was, I, you know, when we, not to be all political, <laughs> but when we talk about, oh, uh, we talk about enthusiasm gaps and things like that, um, and when we talk about expectations for someone, you know, I'm a huge Obama supporter, um, but I'm not, uh, I don't live in fantasy land. And so I'm aware of, you know, someone's failures. But, and he had many um, over the course of four years, and some of his own doing and some of other people's doing. But, it, you know, th- to be saddled with expectations, un- unreal expectations before ever even stepping into office with a book that says you're going to be a transformative president, I think really changes the way people perceive that person. So I've started reading this again to see um, what else was in here that was interesting. And, you know, there's, there's, chapters about repairing a damaged economy 
And what uh, what Kuttner says is, you know, he has to build a huge public work system. Basically, he has to invest in America. Wow. But it, it had it had nothing to do with women's rights or, or any of the things that ended up being such hallmarks of the last four years yeah. because no one could have predicted it. Everyone thought it was going to be about, you know, changing the way America works from a business side. Um, so it's fascinating to look at this book through the rubric of time and through the rubric of prediction. You know, in our one of our last episodes, we talked about, uh, or I talked about my addiction to Nate Silver's 538 blog where he was predicting the presidential election. But here's, you know, here's a policy prediction book and a presumption of what Obama would do. And he even... Um, he even writes what he thinks would be, um, you know, sample speeches. So there's a, a, a chapter called Audacity versus Undertow, um, and where he, you know, he says uh, under the subheading, government can do great things, and it particularly needs to do great things in an economic crisis. And then it sort of lays out what Obama would have to do. And then he says, suppose President Obama gave a major address on America's economic situation that went something like this. My friends... As our nation confronts the most severe economic challenges since the Great Depression, we face a choice. There are those who believe that the best idea is to give everyone one big refund on their government, divided by individual portions in the form of tax breaks, handed out, and encourage everyone to use their share to go buy their own health care, their own retirement plan, their own child care, their own education, and so on. And he goes on with that. And, you know, he has this faux uh, Obama speech that lasts, you know, six pages that sounds like every... Obama speech that he made for four for years. Four years. <laughs> it, it's it's pretty amazing, um, and so it it's it's an interesting thing to look at if you're sort of a political junkie, which I am. Um, it's an interesting thing to look at through you know the result of the election, um, but it's also fucking ballsy, man. How do you write a book about you know a transformative president? Presume what he's going to say, write his speeches, offer solutions, and you know. It, it takes a huge amount of guests to do something like that. So, from a writing standpoint, I just think, wow, what a what an interesting you know interesting thing that he did. Um, well, but how do you give how do you give somebody the Nobel Peace Prize before they've been president? I mean, it was the same yeah, sort of it's naivete absurd. and yeah. excitement that, in retrospect, is just kind of misguided. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and well, he was never allowed to be a person. You know, he's always a symbol, yeah. mm-hmm. um, somewhat by his own doing. But that's you know, yeah. the nature of the game. The next four years will be interesting, of course. But I think if you're if you're interested for uh, Ryder and Julia, you should take a look at this book. But if you're interested, those of you who maybe didn't get to vote in 2008, um, if you're just now uh, over 18 and listening to the show, and you want to know sort of what we were feeling uh, in 2008, this is an interesting book to look at from from a sort of wonky side of things. I love the word wonky. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> Wonky is one of those words. Yeah, oh, just whisper it in my ear. I love that. Oh. Yeah. Wonky. <laughs> All right, stick around for when we discuss Life of Pi coming up next. Welcome back to Literary Disco. We are now going to discuss Life of Pi, a novel by Jan Martel. This was an incredibly successful book that came out in 2001, and we're talking about it today because the movie is coming out this week, and we thought it would be a nice tie-in. I had never read the book. Todd and Julia both had read it 
I guess, how long ago did you guys read it when it first came yeah, out? Yeah, I read it when it first came out, and then I just, I, Me I, too. I, I just reread it for the first time. I'd forgotten a lot of it, actually, so I'm glad I reread Me it. Me too. So I'm actually really glad that the, the movie gave me an excuse to read it because I loved this book. I was ah, really foiled you guys had again. Going. <laughs> foiled again. Did you think I was going to hate it, Tom? Yeah. Uh, Julie and well, I, I thought developed would. a fear that. Well, okay. So let me before we get into the details of the book. I, one of the things that I'm really excited to talk about is rereading. I love rereading, and it's something I don't do enough anymore. And I cannot believe I didn't reread this book. I mean, you read it and you get to the end, which we'll talk about later, and you're like, oh my god, this deserves a reread right now. And it was so awesome to reread it, knowing what where it was going and what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I, but as I was reading it, Ryder, I was like, I liked the book about 50 times more upon the reread than on my initial read. And I started to develop this gnawing fear that you were going to hate this book that I suddenly realized <laughs> how much I loved. <laughs> no, I, I agree. I kind of want to just read it again right away. I mean, I just finished it yesterday and I, I'm, I'm, in love with this book and i'm like the guy now running around telling everybody have you actually read life of pie you need to read it before the movie comes out tomorrow you know like i'm just that guy now because i'm afraid nobody's gonna read the book they're all just gonna watch oh, the movie no, it, whether the movie is no, good or not it will you know. be a huge bestseller again i mean it's it's okay. never not been a bestseller i think for the last you know 11 years basically it's a genuinely brilliant book all right well let's just talk about what it is so life of pie tells the story of um Pisine patel is that anything? it's actually piscine which is why piscine. his nickname is so horrifying because yeah. it shortens to P. Yeah. Right. So it's it starts off as a kind of coming-of-age story uh, with Pi. Uh, and he his family runs a zoo in Pondicherry, India. And he helps his dad out at the zoo. And he starts exploring different religions. But he has, like, a, a series of mentor figures. Um, he has his father. And then he has a priest that he visits. He has, And he starts really getting into three different religions. He um, studies... Uh, Islam, he gets into Hinduism, which his family is actually raising him as a Hindu, and then he gets really into Christianity, and um, this creates some conflict, and everybody, you know, sort of saying, you have to pick one, and he doesn't believe you have to pick one religion. Wait, and uh, if and, I can interject really fast, he also has yeah. a mentor figure who I love, who is a scientist, who's right. a teacher. Right, yes. right. Um, the atheist, yes. of the course. Atheist. Yeah, right. and they had, there's a great conversation where it's just genius, the atheist and the... Uh, I forget which one. I think the the his Hindu mentor. They have a conversation, mm-hmm. yes. but they have the same name, right. so you don't yes. know who's saying, <laughs> who's saying what. what. And they're having this like deep theological conversation, but um, Jan Martel specifically right. does yeah. not allow you to know who's arguing what. It's so good. Yeah, it's a great little scene. <laughs> I mean, it's really complex too, and it's really ballsy <laughs> to have characters with the yeah. same name having a conversation, arguing, and then you don't know who's talking. Anyway, go on, Ryder, sorry. The family moves the entire zoo to Canada, and it's en route to Canada that the ship sinks, and Pi is stranded on a boat with a tiger, which is sort of the iconic... um, If anyone's ever seen the cover of the book Life of Pi, you already know that there's a tiger (laughs) and a kid in a lifeboat. So we're not really giving much away that that's the the entire thrust of the story. And and then for about 200 more pages, it's him and this tiger in a boat. And unbelievably, it is so exciting and page-turning. It becomes a meditation on a lot of the religious themes that were developed in the beginning of the book. And this character of Pi, who you just come to love and... um, his mind state, his emotional state, his spiritual state. Uh, I just think this book is fantastic. And it also it also touches on... So the, the tiger's name is Richard Parker, as many tigers are called. Um, mm-hmm. It talks a lot about 
and I said this before we read the book, that I learned more about zoos and animals mm-hmm. reading this book than I learned about anything else. But it talks a lot about territory and how animals are trained and what animals will do and won't do and how they don't necessarily think of you as food. They think of you as invaders to a specific territory. And the, but the time spent on the boat with the Bengal tiger, you, you begin to, they, they suffer with each other and uh, Pi, Pi basically, you know, determines at some point that they must live together versus trying to figure out a way to kill him. Mm-hmm. And it's that strange symbiotic relationship between a man and a man-eating creature on a boat that you're you're never sure when the time's going to come when the tiger's going to eat him. That's the constant mm-hmm. pressure of the book. When's that tiger going to eat him? Um, which is amazing. Yeah, but, uh, but they're you know they're also wasting away together. Right. And it's so I love the he makes a list of all the possible ways to kill him or deal <laughs> right. with this situation. Right. And when he finally determines that the only way to survive is to feed him and take care of him, I mean it's so to train, to him, train him to train the tiger. Incredible. Yeah. To tame yeah. him. I mean he never truly. I mean he he never. Well, not never, but for most of the book. They're just coexisting in a way that isn't, you know, he's not like a tame. I don't want people to hear that and think that, like, oh, he becomes this pet tiger and no. they like cuddle <laughs> together. And uh, no, he's at all points a dangerous creature and right. capable of terrible things. Well, it's established really well in the beginning when he's discussing at the zoo and his father teaches him a lesson about how dangerous tigers are by feeding a goat to a tiger in front of them. Right. And it's. It's just, you know, it's it's a perfect plotting because you read that scene and you just, you know, you know that he's sort of scarred from the age of eight or whatever his dad did this to him on. And, you know, his dad's basically teaching him, you know, animals are animals. Right. Like, you can't trust them. Never think that you can turn your back. And so it just establishes this dread that doesn't go away throughout the entire book. And, and the other thing is that I think worth noting is, you know, I had this idea, you know, this iconic image of the kid and the tiger on a boat. I, I knew that that was what the book was about. But actually, when he first gets into the lifeboat, there are more animals. Right. There's a tiger, an mm-hmm. orangutan, a uh, hyena, hyena zebra. and a zebra. And a rat. So it's like There's this floating zoo. Yeah. And then a rat, some cockroaches. There's like, It's a kind of this floating zoo of, uh, at first. And, you know, at, that ends up, you know, becoming another series of, you know, watching these animals kill each other. And it's really brutal. Mm-hmm. And it's described so well. And I have to say, for me, that first section of the book was kind of cutesy to me. And if you think about the idea of, like, a kid and a tiger and a lifeboat, there, yes. there could be this fable quality that would make it all very safe and um, sanitary and sort of... Uh, well, that's this, I'm saying what I was afraid right. of. But, I'm, yes. I'm, yes. Once, yeah. once, but there is a fable the, quality to it. Oh, totally. Yes. No, no, no. no. That, I think that there's an element of that, We're obviously. Get there. I mean, <laughs> but I think that... But I, what I loved about the book was that the descriptions of, say, the zebra dying, mm-hmm. yeah. which happens... You know, I'm not giving much away. The zebra gets eaten by the hyena. It is really hard to read and, mm-hmm. and tra- traumatizing and um, and very realistically described and, I mean, d- describing blood and guts and it, it erases all the cutesiness that you felt in the first 50 pages of the book and it also erases any cutesiness that might come from like living at the zoo is fun and you know here I am with the t-. it's like you're terrified that this kid is going to get eaten or that he's going to see some awful things it's just it's 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 a very realistic depiction of animals I totally agree and I'm like very grouchy about the copy on the back of the book and the marketing for the movie which just skips straight to boy and tiger and the, and the, the thing is that that's upsetting about that is that 
um, the author makes a big point about the anthropomorphizing of animals um, yes. and how mm-hmm. we ascribe human emotion and human action to animals based on basically what we want them to be like. And I mean, this is this is totally true. Just if you have a, a dog or a cat and you think that, oh, they're they're angry, or they're sad or, you know, they they speak in a British accent or whatever it might be. Um, but, you know, <laughs> it, but in, you know, so that in the movie trailers, they're they're And and you can just sort of see it in the way that the Richard Parker, the, the tiger looks in the movie trailers that, you know, he seems wise and all these things, but also a little ferocious. But it's the exact opposite of what Jan Martel is saying in the book is about, you know, remember that animals are always animals, that you right. can imprint on them, but it doesn't change the fact of what they are. Well, this is probably this is something that I mean, this is something that I'm worried about with the film is that is that possible? You know, because whenever animals are in film, they're anthropomorphized. Like that's just the nature of visualizing an animal in a way that reading a book. You know, I mean, so much of this book is about Pi's mental state in relation to the tiger, we're not going to be able to see that. It's going to be just, you know, looks between them. And so in order to to do that, are they going to are they going to pull it off? Like can they have the depth that this book does in a in a in a film? You know, sort of like can you do a film of Moby Dick? Yes, but then it just becomes about Ahab killing a whale. You lose all of Ishmael's thoughts. Right. You lose, you know, what it is that makes that book amazing. Like there's an adventure story about killing a whale. That's only you know, that's just the exterior story. There's a whole bunch of interior story going on. And this book has a lot of, well, religious mm-hmm. themes. Well, I mean, well, it has to be a book about faith because you can't be stuck on a boat with, um, you know, a, a Bengal tiger and, and you know, drift at sea for 277 days, which is how long Pi. So the, the ship crashes. He gets in the boat with these animals and he's adrift for 277 days. But it's not like a dinghy that he's in. It's It's a lifeboat from a very large boat. So it's got food and provisions, and it's long. It's like a 27-foot-long lifeboat. Mm-hmm. So for those of you who haven't read the book, if you're thinking of, you know, a tiny raft, it's actually, you know, you wouldn't want to be trapped on it for 277 days, but it, it is fairly big, 27 feet long, and it has food and water on it to last at least for a little while. Um, but it has to be a book about faith because when, when you've lost everything, you have to believe in something um, mm-hmm. in order to live. And I think... My fear with the movie, and we'll, we'll, we're all going to see the movie and then we'll, we'll discuss our fears, is that it's going to be fucking cast away and he's going to fall in love with a, um, with a volleyball. You know, it's going to be <laughs> right. that the tiger is going to be Nelson or Wilson or whatever the fuck the, the, the yeah, volleyball was called. Not to say that I didn't see Castaway and cry my eyes out in it. I did. Yeah, I, why are you hating I'm Castaway? <laughs> I shouldn't. I, <laughs> But it's not a movie I can watch over and over again because it gives me, as the Jews say, the surus. Oh, the fear. Well, I think that, first of all, I don't think that's going to... I have faith right now. This is my faith, okay, in the in the translation of book two movie. But I also think that it is time for us to spoil this book and talk about the ending and how it colors the rest of the book. So are you guys sure. ready to do that? We, we should first at least bring up some of the, the, the changes in the narrative before we get to that. So it starts out pretty tangible. There is the sort of Darwinian battle of wills that goes on in the boat, and Pi builds himself a raft so he can get off of the boat and, and be away from the tiger a little bit. So all that happens. So this goes, they have this, this uneasy detente for a while where they're feeding one another, and he's basically, Pi's taking care of the tiger. And they're at sea and they don't see anybody. Um, but then they come across a very strange island that's surrounded by algae. And he describes the island as being about six miles wide. 
and they park on this island, and it's there's no other living creatures except for algae and meerkats. And trees. And trees. And so every night, um, he and, and the tiger, or every day he and the tiger would, would go and spend a bunch of time on the island. They'd eat to their heart's content. And every night, it should be noted, the tiger would always go back and sleep on the boat, whereas Pi would sleep inside of a tree eventually. And he realizes that, and this is where it gets sort of magically real or surreal, I guess, that the island's algae is flesh-eating. Um, and that at night, for some reason, um, the algae uh, begins to dissolve flesh, which is why the tiger was smart enough to every night go sleep in the boat, and every night the meerkats would run off into the forest, basically. Right. So what he says is that the island is carnivorous. Right. That the island is carnivorous. Well, I think the book, it gets progressively more magical, magical realist as it goes along. Yes. I mean, the book really starts off as a cut and dry realist book and you know it's it's very like this is the nature of animals this is what it's like to work in a zoo this is how i you know made a raft and he gets very detailed about describing the physical realities around him and it all is very scientific it's all very reason based it's all evidence and then as the book goes along you know starting with taming a tiger it sort of becomes more and more fantastical mm-hmm. and by the end he's created an island that couldn't exist, right? right. Or it has never existed in the history of you know, science. That nobody's ever found a carnivorous island. And um, so this is definitely a spoiler. You know, we're, we're telling the whole story. When he gets home, um, he's interviewed by uh, Japanese... Uh, they're insurance invest- investigators um, because of the, sh- the sinking of the ship. They're looking for an explanation as to why the ship sank and what happened and how Pi survived. And they don't believe the tiger story, which is the story we have just read throughout the novel. And mostly believed. Right, deeply. so yeah. he, he, he basically washes up in Mexico after nearly a year at sea. And as soon as he washes up on the shore of Mexico, he crawls out of the boat and Richard Parker runs off into the forest of Mexico and is gone and lost forever. We never see him. Um... And so there's there's no evidence of Richard Parker's existence at that point because when the people stumble upon Pi on the shoreline, the tiger is gone. And so the book sort of leaves you with this question because what then Pi does is, you know, these these uh, Japanese guys are like, we don't believe your story. And so Pi at that point tells an alternative story, which is that he, along with his mother, a cook, and one other guy, a sailor, right? yeah. a sailor, a sailor, all survived and ended up in the lifeboat together. And he tells a parallel story that works in terms of the events that occurred between the zebra, the hyena, and um, the orangutan. The, and the orangutan actually parallel what happens between his mother and the cook. But of course, they're humans, so it's much more brutal, and they're killing each other, and it's an awful, tragic story. And Pi offers that up as an alternative to what happened with the tiger. And, and essentially, Pi is the tiger. I mean, that, that's, mm-hmm. that's right. the, the conclusion that is made, is that yes. Pi, there are two sides to Pi. There's the human side and there's the animal side. And right. what you learn from him telling this parallel story is that he became the tiger, that he right. had to do what he had to do, which was that the, the chef on... The cook, I guess. <laughs> the sous chef who landed on the, <laughs> yeah, on the boat with him. The the chef, uh, the cook, is 
he calls him a brute and he was a horrible man. It's a, it's a really brutal story that Pi tells. Very, I mean, largely based in cannibalism yeah. and, right. yeah. So there, there's this question at the end of the book, which version of the story is the truth and which version do we want to believe? Because, the you know, you finish this novel having read about this great adventure with the Bengal tiger and then you also get the alternative story, which is just this horrific, depressing, bleak view of human nature. <laughs> I don't know. Do you guys walk away with, I mean, do you have a, a, a very a strict interpretation about what is going on? Or it, it seems to me the more likely outcome is that he was in a boat with these three people and they had to kill each other and eat one another. Then it is likely that there was a bunch of animals in the boat. What I like about, I mean, the ending sounds like very much like twist, but I, what <laughs> I love about the book is that, and I got so fucking excited reading this, which is why I started freaking out that uh, one of you guys would hate it, um, is that everything works perfectly in reverse, including mm-hmm. the first 75 pages, which are not the parables. So what you know, what seems to be a book about the anthropomorphication of animals is actually about humans' animal nature. Right. And mm. rereading that is so unbelievable. Like, oh thinking about... Oh, my God, about, that's so good. That's so right. Yeah, think about all the stuff about how we have territory mm-hmm. and how... There's this huge passage. It's so beautiful. I wish I... Right at the beginning, I wish I had marked it of, like, you know... Um, no animal is free. We say p- birds are free, but they're not free. They're all confined by these limits and these limits. And knowing that it that is actually about people is so incredible. And then when they first get in the boat, in the boat, this at this point, I almost like started crying. So, uh, so Richard Parker, Julia's going you know, through some shit, ladies and gentlemen. Just yeah, so you guys know, just I just <laughs> you know, as previously mentioned, I love animals. But so tasty. You know, so tasty. But I'm always nervous about books about animals because they have this quality of corniness. But this does not. But so when Richard Parker gets in the boat, you know, he's since the lifeboat is so big, he is. Pi doesn't even realize that the tiger is in the boat for a while. So Ryder, like, imagine this on a reread, and you're like, oh my god, he has this violent nature mm-hmm. that he is mm-hmm. completely ignoring, and one day he just looks down and sees that the tiger is lying in the planks where he has been hanging out this whole time. And just the feeling of, you know, this young man trying to grapple with, you know, his own animal nature that has to come out to survive is just incredible. And of course the author doesn't tell you what the truth is anywhere. And not that I, it would ruin the book if you knew. Um, but it, it also sort of reminds me of what Tim O'Brien says in how to tell a true war story, which is that if you have to ask if it was true, it doesn't matter, you know, um, that it's the story itself. That's so powerful. And if in fact, this is not a kid on a boat with these animals, it doesn't matter. He has spun this yarn where it is true. And if it is a story about people on a boat who end up killing one another, um, that's almost the story we expect to happen because we've read true accounts of those sorts of things. We, we know about the right. Donner Party. So, well, and it reminds us that all, I mean, we've talked about this before, but all fiction is a parable. When you say, like, oh, which story is true? Uh, guys, neither of them is true. It's a, it's a novel. <laughs> you know? So to get caught up in which is more true, which feels more true, it doesn't in any way, it's not a 
factual thing. Right. Right. Well, it, it seems to me that so much of this book is about the power of storytelling and so much mm-hmm. of, uh, about the power of narrative and, and which version, how you, how you tell a story or which story you decide to tell determines the message, I guess, in a way, or determines, you know, what you're saying about humanity or, or reality. And I found that in the, the religious parallels in the beginning, too, because he, Pi doesn't understand how you can't uh, be a Muslim and a Christian mm-hmm. and a Hindu. Especially and, since they all practice on different days of the week, right. which is a right. hilarious <laughs> but, but, you know, in a way, he, he, he sort of, he talks about, like, Jesus, the, the, the story of Jesus, and he talks about how that compares to, like, some of the Hindu god stories. And he's like, he doesn't understand, you know, that that Jesus could be such a weakling of a god. Right. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and if you start comparing the different stories, Pi's approach is that, well, they're all there to get to the same god. That they're, they're all different stories to get you to religion and, and to spirituality. And that it's a really interesting take. You know, the, the, the best way it's put is he gets into an argument, I think it's with his father, about how you, can't, you can have multiple passports. You can have a passport mm-hmm. for different countries and be a citizen of different countries, but you can't be a citizen of different religions. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's a really interesting sort of naive child view in some ways, but you know, it, it parallels perfectly what ends up happening t- in the process of reading this book, is that you have multiple versions of this story, and they both get to the same point, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is that Pi survived. Right. He survived this crazy experience, and... How that happened, you could either choose to believe this great story about the tiger and all this, you know, amazing stuff that happened with an island and it seems unrealistic in some ways, or you can believe in this very cold-hearted cook killing his mother story and eating other people. And it's like sort of up to you, but they both get to the same place, which is that Pi survived and, and he survived through a strength of character and... You know, a intelligence. The, the, I just want to say the one great clue that is in here. I just found it because I cracked up reading it. There's this is to me the only clue. There it is uh, in the instructions for the survival manual. Total throwaway. I was just looking um, at that. By the way, yeah, the total throwaway half sentence. Um, you know, there's like all these instructions how to survive. If you're thirsty, suck a button. Do all this stuff. How to fish, and it just says, you know, oh, to pass the time, yarn spinning yes. is also highly recommended. Mm. It's just like bang, and and you know that he goes through all almost all of the other suggestions. And what another one of the great things though uh, that goes back to what Ryder was just saying is that he uh, Pi takes stock of the boat, and so he lists all the stuff. Um, you know, one first aid kit, 192 tablets of anti seasickness medicine, 500 milliliters of water, all this stuff, and then it boils down and it says one boy with a complete set of light clothing, but for one lost shoe. One spotted hyena, one Bengal tiger, one lifeboat, one ocean, one god. Mm-hmm. And I love that part. I mean, it 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 it, it talks about the power of, of that faith. And uh, you know what? If I were stuck in the middle of the ocean, I would try to find every religion possible. <laughs> I would, uh, right. I'd be I'd be praying to the flying fish. Um, well, I have kind of an unanswerable question. You have these competing religions, right? These competing narratives that are all... It, it, I feel like what this book is saying and that you have these different narratives, these different gods, but they're all reaching for the same thing. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's sort of the, the thematic point is that they're all there to get you to God or to get you to belief or faith. But really, doesn't that diminish 
actual differences, though. I mean, and if you take that to the sto- to to the novel, if you if you trained a tiger and survived in the wild, that says something different about the world than if you watched the cook murder your mother right. and you killed him. And and it's 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 if you believe that the world was formed by like Hindu playful human like gods with various supernatural powers, you have a different worldview than if you believe. You know, there's one God who gave his one son in Jesus to die at a human hand. I mean, these aren't minor differences. Those are, those are huge differences, and those stories lead to human beings acting different and civilizations to behave differently and kill each other or, you know, like, mm-hmm. saying that all religions are the same, I mean, that's kind of not true, well, right? Well, no. I mean, like, you have a different worldview if you're a Muslim versus a Christian, just like you have a different takeaway from this book if you believe that he actually had a time. But I, I think, I think action. the thing is, is that people pick and choose what they believe from all religions. You know, mm-hmm. there, there's a big difference between a fundamentalist Christian and um, a non-fundamentalist Christian. There's a big difference between an Orthodox Jew and a Reformed Jew. So you're, you're taking from the same text and interpreting as you want to. Uh, and I think that is what, you know, Pi is doing. He's taking what he wants from each and interpreting mm-hmm. it in however he wants to. I mean, that's... That's what has caused um, uh, wars for the last, I don't know, 10,000 years or whatever long mm-hmm. people have been killing each other. Well, it's the existence of humanity. <laughs> but the other thing is that by the conclusion of the book, what he also believes in is not religion, but he believes in companionship. He believes in the ability to get along with those who might kill you and figure out a way mm-hmm. to you know, to survive, which is a very humanistic point of view that we're, you know, we are the world, we are the children, we are the ones who take well, a brighter and day that, and let's start than, giving. More than... There's a choice we're making. Everybody know. I'm going to talk. Sorry. <laughs> it, it, it's interesting because the two stories aren't like, you know, he survived with a tiger and the cook killed his mother. No, those are different parts of the story. So, like, the two parts are... He survived with a tiger or he accepted that he himself was an animal. Right. You know, that's the interesting aspect of the book. You know, that he, I mean, think about that, like how putting the human only story on that section we were talking about earlier where he's like, how do I deal with this tiger? You know, the question is like, does he kill the animal in himself? And he Mm -hmm. decides not to, you know, he decides that he will and can become a violent person for the sake of his own survival and to to feed literally to feed the animal part of himself constantly you know that's what the story means if you take only the human part and that is so interesting you know that he says like i'm not i cannot remain this vegetarian right. you know 16 mm-hmm. year old boy if I'm going to live and I, I must accept that a part of me will always be an animal and a part of me will always have instincts that are terrifying, but I have to feed my animal self in order to live, Mm -hmm. you know, and that Mm -hmm. is, you know, that's so much more interesting than there's like a crazy French, French guy, you know, (laughs) eating people. And I think, you know, the, the big takeaway from this is this is why I don't go to sea. You know, I, uh, I've been on two cruises in my life. Both of them (sighs) hugged the shoreline. The entire time, mm-hmm. and um, you know, I don't don't want to have to eat people, and I have a fear of being stuck in a lifeboat with people I've gone on a cruise with. All right, so are you guys optimistic about the movie, or I mean, I think just I think the movie looks so beautiful. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I am I am a little worried about a lack of um, 
nuance to the, you know all the things we've been discussing. Ang Lee usually makes pretty good movies, uh, mm-hmm. so I, I have faith in that. But because it's such an interior story, like as I was reading it again this time, I was like, how the fuck are they going to make this a movie? And also, I mean, in a way, like Julia, when you made that joke about like twist mm-hmm. at the end it will kind of become that right like yes. it will become like you've watched this fantastic exciting movie ah, ah, it was all in his head you know it's going to be like kind of a dream ending yeah and that yeah i'm a little that... worried that that will feel incredibly anticlimactic without the story the conscious storytelling aspect do you know what mm-hmm. i mean because yes. we we finish it and we know that pi has been telling us the story and we've been trusting him it's an unreliable narrator and how do you do that on film like well, how do you... i know that from watching the trailers obsessively i know that they are i feel optimistic about this because they are Jan Martel is a character in the movie. Oh. One of the trailers oh, cool. has the framing of him interviewing him. So, oh, cool. Okay, cool. Um, so there so is this sort of documentary flashback quality. Okay. Exactly. I, I, I feel good about it. Although this year, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but four movies are coming out based on four incredible books, and at least two of them have got to be horrible, right? So Gatsby, <laughs> this... Um, I'll tell you right now, Gatsby's uh, going to be horrible. Gatsby, yeah, Gatsby's going to be fucking terrible. I and The Hobbit's going to look gonna beautiful but be so boring. Uh, the Hobbit will be awesome. And <laughs> Lame is, which I'm actually expecting to be awesome. So, yeah. So, reading this book and realizing, being aware of, you know, how many literary movies are coming out, as I was reading the book, I got increasingly excited for the movie because I think this is the most cinematic of all of the movies that are about to come out. And I just, I trust Ang Lee. I, I, yeah. He has my trust. And if he breaks my trust, I'm going to kill a bitch because I really like this book. <laughs> <laughs> Julia's gonna bust a cat. So, Julia's gonna peel Angley's cat back. Uh, my inner Richard Parker is gonna come out and maul right. somebody. Well, I can't wait for us to have seen the movie and get back. I wish we were all in the same place. We could go see it together. Oh, you know what we should do is we should we should bring our Google Hangout into the we, movie or theater. Don't we? Have, we all have iPhones. We can FaceTime in the movie theater. How annoying would that be to the people around us? Oh yeah, everyone will love that. We should tell our jokes at the same time. Did you get that one, Julia? I made a I made a dick joke. Did you get that? And that's it for this week's episode of Literary Disco. Join us in a week when we will discuss the movie Life of Pi. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash literary disco, and follow us on Twitter at Literary Disco. Thanks for listening. Romantic